disease is taking root at that time, and if we're not addressing it then, then we're getting the diagnosis later on. That's what we need to get people to understand is everybody's waiting. They're waiting for the diagnosis. That's the problem. All behavior makes sense. Not to say that all behavior is helpful or ideal, but when we understand the psychology of behavior change, the emotional backstory, and the way that the brain works, things that on the surface appear to be illogical begin to make sense, and we can use that understanding to start shaping true change. If you follow the fitness marketing model, it's like, here's this photo of me. I look this way because I eat these things and I do this exercise. You can just do that same thing too. And then when you show up and find out that that's not going to work for you. All right, welcome to another episode of Wellness Unfiltered with Deep Health Academy. I'm Coach John McClernan, your rock star host, along with Chris, the professional cat herder and trainer of Olympians. Caitlin, the gut health specialist who helps people poop on a daily basis. And somehow we've thrown awkwardly into the mix uh, Mr. Dylan Sessler, who is a mental health uh, specialist, uh, a, a life coach who doesn't want to be called a life coach, I think, if I have that right, <laughs> because he does more than that. And it's a cliched term, but... Uh, yeah, we're, we're excited today because we're excited for every conversation we have. And today's conversation is going to be maybe a bit of a heavier one for some of the things we're going to talk about. But we might as well throw a bit of lighthearted stuff in there because I think all of us have some trauma in our background. And thankfully, we've done a lot of the work to get to a place where we can speak about it with without being sad and depressed all the time. And so I'm excited to dive into today's conversation. I'm going to throw it over to Dylan and say, Dylan, why don't you give us a 30-second, well, I think we allowed you 42 seconds in the, uh, in the pre-call uh, chat to tell us what you do. Uh, I'm a mental health coach. That's what I, that's what I call myself. So what I do is I help people walk through some of the hardest situations they've ever been through and help them understand how to think, how to really address the problems of their past and make them solutions for their future. Um, and just develop a better way of dealing with the narrative of, their, of excuse me, the narrative of their life and kind of address anything that kind of gets in the way of enjoying this, you know, this thing we call life. I love that. And, uh, you know, I was watching on TikTok, even though I'm not on TikTok, I was deciding to, to stalk you anyways. And uh, you, you were taught, you had a quote and it was something on the lines of, as long as you keep looking back, your best days are going to be behind you. I, I might be butchering that one a little bit, but I really appreciate what you shared there because uh, having been through trauma myself and some pretty dark, um, dark days through my thirties as a result of the trauma and PTSD, um, there, there is sometimes I wonder like, you know, how am I going to find my way out of this? And the, the number of different ways we kind of choose to find coping mechanisms to deal with like what's going on inside our head. Cause it's, it can be very, very difficult to escape from. And so uh, somebody comes to you and they're, they're like, you know, I, I don't even know what to do anymore. I don't even have a, have a way out. Where, where do you start with someone? Well, first thing I do, as as I assume all three of you kind of understand, is I have to learn, right? Like mm. I have to I have to understand what it is, what mindset you're actually in to actually understand where you're going with that. Um, because we we like to we like to say what we think is the right thing to say, which is really interesting yeah. when when you're a coach, um, because people like to give you only the information that they're willing to give you. And so one of the things that I do that I'm, I'm, I see, I guess I'm a lot different than other people or other coaches is that I'm not looking for what you want to tell me. I'm looking for what you are afraid to tell me. Um, because normally when, when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about these deep internal battles and these struggles that you're facing, it's, 
It's what you're so uncomfortable with exposing. That is what is literally crushing you. And when you can really begin to be honest about that, when you can clarify that you can be safe talking about these things and exposing these things, that's where I go. And, you know, I've had, I've had a number of clients, you know, come to me and just be like, you're a wrecking ball of perspective. And (laughs) I, I oftentimes I'm like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm like, you know what, if people keep coming, it's obviously a good thing. If they Mm -hmm. don't come, we'll, we'll address that in the future. (laughs) Yeah. I think the ability to, to what gets lost. And I, I like what you highlighted there, just that we, we tell people, and, and we get this as coaches as well, right? People tell us what they think uh, they're supposed to say to us um, yeah. because there's this idea. Because I think we're used to, as coaches, like displaying our trophy case, so to speak. Look at these amazing results that I get with this client. And then somebody comes along and thinks that, hey, if I'm going to work with you, it's going to be, well, I call it like we mount up on our unicorns and and hop on the rainbow bridge up to the clouds where we go through this beautiful little journey that where there's no bumps and it's all sunshine. <laughs> Um, that's the way we, we instinctively would kind of like it to go. When in reality, I say we're about to go kayaking through a tunnel of sewage. And, yeah. uh, if, if that doesn't scare you away, then let's go on this journey and see where it takes us. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I hesitate even saying that I have a trophy case, you know, when I, when mm-hmm. I think myself as a, as a coach, I just, I don't look at people and say you're a success story because your life isn't over yet. Right. You can, you can 100% turn around the day after you meet me and it's it's all over. And so I don't I don't like to play the marketing game of trying to expose to people, you know, I've helped this many hundred thousand clients. You know, the only numbers I really throw out there every once in a while is like I have almost 600,000 followers on TikTok. That's about it. Yeah. Right? That's like you know and that's not a huge accomplishment, right? I think in the last 2 years if you were to really try you could probably get that, right? I think a lot of people could have gotten that. I just doubled down on it and I pushed into it. Um, but the results of walking people through this situation doesn't necessarily manifest itself in, okay, you went through six weeks of working with me. Now you're good. That's not necessarily the case because what I talk about is something that you need to kind of develop within yourself for the rest of your life. It's a, it's a process that you never stop learning, right? I've yeah. been, I've been living for 32 years and I'm still learning about myself. I'm still learning what my weaknesses are, even though I've spent the last seven years actively looking at them with a microscope and I'm still, I'm still messing it up. I don't know if I can swear here, but normally I would say <laughs> the, the other word. Uh, <laughs> like, Caitlin, go ahead and break the ice. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, I swear, so you're good. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'll fucking it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite word. I don't have my fuck pillow in here, though. Um, <laughs> I should, though, because um, I sidetracked one second. My mom watched one of these today and complained about my background. Hi, mom. Um, <laughs> anyways, I love what you said about you know, like it, this can go backwards tomorrow. Like it's always a process. I feel like, like you said, you don't know, jump on the marketing train because that's what people are like. They're always like, Oh, 90 days. And like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be perfect after that. Like everything will be fixed. I've crossed the golden bridge. I'm good now. That doesn't fucking happen in literally anything we do. Never. <sighs> Caitlin, I'm wondering where this fire is. You know, this is this is amazing. <laughs> bring bring more just, of this. 
Yeah. Well, I, and I think it's it's maybe in a sense, I don't know if frustrations are, but I, I, I'm willing to bet there's a lot of coaches out there that experience some frustration because they're like, I want to genuinely help you. But the way the industry is going in, in any kind of coaching, whether it's life coaching, health coaching, fitness coaching, whatever, it's like we feel as though in order to convince you that you should work with me, I have to show you that I'm going to make your life perfect and that for the rest of your life, it's going to be easy. Yeah. And so it feels like sometimes we have to kind of swim uphill or against the tide a little bit and go, and, and this is what I do to people with people is I literally tell them my analogy of like kayaking through a sewage tunnel. There's a whole story that goes with it, but it's basically explaining this is what it's actually going to look like because this is, this is real life. And we don't know like next year, how life just might kick us all in the junk, you know, and, and flip us on our heads. And so what we need to do is develop a skill set to navigate real life and all the, all the stuff it's going to throw at us. And, you know, Dylan, you've done some amazing work in terms of your own mental health, your own journey, the things you've come through. I read a bit of your backstory. And in that, I'm willing to bet you still have hard days. You still have difficult days. There's still things that you struggle with and you work through. How do you navigate the difficult days? And maybe how do you navigate them differently than you would have in the past? Well, you know, that's that's actually something I've thought about, especially in the last few, uh, I guess, the last few years, but mostly the last few months, because uh, my wife and I are pregnant, right? We like my, my wife is pregnant. She's coming out. Uh, my little girl's coming out in June. Um, but that is just the end of a, you know, that's the happy ending of a story that wasn't so happy, right? Because we lost three to get to one. And that's, you know, in, in, in many regards, like it's still hard for me and I'm going to get emotional here because of it, but that's a remarkably difficult thing to go through. You know, and regardless of who you are, male or female, I don't care who you are. When you realize that you don't get the thing that you've always kind of wanted, um, it's hard. You know, like loss can can jump up and bite you in the bite you in the ass, hit you in the face, punch you in every place that you never thought it could punch you. Um, and you still have to figure out how to keep going. And me and my wife had to figure out how to keep going. And after all three of those losses and figure out like, do we even want this? Do we want to go through this again? Right. And we, we had to go through like the IUI journey. Um, and the, and, and we were even thinking about IVF and that was such a difficult thing to kind of discuss of like, we'd lose one and we're like, what the fuck do we do? Like, this is, this is terrible. This is tragic. This is, is painful. And, you know, when I, if I were to look back 10 years, a lot of these things that I went through, especially last year, last year, last year was particularly difficult for me because I lost a soldier of mine that I, that I deployed with. That was my soldier in Afghanistan. I was his, I was, his, I was his sergeant in June, lost a baby in July, published a book in July. So that was just a nightmare and a half of trying to do all of that while all of this is happening. I went to sniper school in August, got COVID and then while I had COVID, while I was isolated in quarantine in in for or in Arkansas, my grandpa died. Um, short notice, like we lost him in like three days, um, and I was I was about a day away from from coming home. Um, and so I came home, and then you know, all of this all happened within a span of three or four months. And was it hard? Absolutely. But what I remembered you know, from all of that time. And I keep, I, I still kind of go back to this every once in a while. I still remember the ability to say it happens. Right. And, and to look forward and remember that I have a wife, I have a stepson, I have a whole 
you know, community of people that are looking at me and saying, are you going to, are you going to keep going through all of this? And it wasn't even the community that, that really bolstered that. It was just me. It was me is my ability to look at myself and remember, you know, seven years ago, I almost gave up. I almost never had any of this opportunity to see, you know, the, what happened later in September, right? I could have looked at September, August, July, June, all of it as just hard, right? Painful. But then September happened and we found out we were having a baby. And it was like, if you didn't get through all of those, you never would have got to here. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a, it's a really hard thing to, to recognize when you're looking at all of that pain to maybe get to one piece of happiness. And if you don't have the the perspective to understand that that's kind of how life works is you're not going to have a lifetime of happiness. You're going to have moments of happiness, moments of peace, moments of joy where you can look back on and, and enjoy and craft this understanding of this is how I got to this. This is how I got to there. And you do it. You, you, you know, you dig your heels into the ground and you force yourself to understand all of these bad things are going to happen, right? Death is going to happen. Pain is going to happen. Hurt is going to happen, right? Disease is going to happen. And yet you have to continue to find and create your own peace, your own balance, your own joy. Um, and you have to do it up here, you know, in your mind more than you have to do it physically because, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many stories of this kind of placebo effect of creating this negativity, right? Like I, I watch my son play video games sometimes and I remind myself of how I used to play video games of like you, you die or you, you mess up something and it is, I mean, it's trauma, right? Like it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And he, you know, he gets angry. I used to get angry nowadays. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll play every once in a while and I'll, I'll, I'll die and I'll be like, damn, got to figure it out. Right. Like got to <laughs> yeah. do, got to do something different. Like, and, and I'm, I'm realizing that this ability to just understand what is actually bad and what is actually good. And this subjective idea uh, is kind of a foundation of understanding whether you can get through something or not. Yeah. I think it brings up a lot of um, cultural identity things, right? Because the reality is that sort of, it's almost like broken promises. You know, you, especially in, in this culture in Western culture, you get brought into the world with expectations about how awesome your life is going to be. <laughs> and then like, sometimes that's not what happens. In fact, most of the time, that's not what happens. And we're not, I don't think we're giving people enough of the tools to cope with the the things that aren't ideal you know because in a video game like you say like you you die right but you just right away you get another life or you start over or you go back a level like we don't get those opportunities the same way in real life not in like the natural world specifically and you know more tangibly and we've done a really great job as humans of separating ourselves as much as possible from some of those natural world consequences and if you look at other like indigenous cultures um, that are what we call in the Western world, very arrogantly less developed or less industrialized, they don't have a lot of these same issues with coping with loss or trauma or death and the rituals that they have around 
these events, because that's what they are, they're events, they're life events, um, are very, very different and a lot more rounded in the emotional sphere, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's really interesting to see how people, like how their expectations about how life is supposed to be generate their trauma response in a lot of cases. So I don't know how you feel about that. And having been to Afghanistan and fought um, in that environment, like I'm, I'm sure you have some really interesting perspectives on that. I, I a hundred percent agree, right? Like the, the idea, the idea that we think we're right is, is the greatest, uh, the greatest wrongdoing we'll ever do to ourselves. Um, we have no idea, right? When we, when we look at life, when we look at, you know, I look at myself and I consider myself somewhat of an expert, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm dumb, right? Because we, we just don't have the, the knowledge. We don't have the information. We don't have the capacity to study and understand everything that goes into what mental health really is. Do I have a little bit of experience? Absolutely. Right. But I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how many people you talk to. I don't care how many things you think you understand. There's always going to be something that you don't. And there's this, what I always find funny is that people think ignorance is, uh, is an insult, right? I, I think it's, it's an absolute, right? We're all ignorant. And when we try to prescribe, whether it's cultural or not, when we try to prescribe anything as we know this to be right, um, whether it's religion, whether it's finance, whether it's mental health, it doesn't matter. Like even us right here, if we try and prescribe something as this is what is right or wrong, we're wrong. <laughs> like That's just the, I think that's just the, the fundamental understanding that most people don't understand. Right. I think, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that comes down to like, what is rationality? you know, and what is logic? And I, I kind of look at rationality as being everything you've ever felt is valid, right? Every feeling you've ever felt is valid because if you understand that your body was right, you start to understand how to actually functionally look and say, but how my, how I reacted was wrong, right? And, and start to clarify that my body's going to naturally react this way, um, and then you start to apply logic and start to understand, I, I understand that I can, I can accept that my body's going to do this, but now in response to what my body does, I have to clarify my thoughtful response and my logical response. And then we start to clarify what is actually right and wrong for us and not the world, and not everybody else. And that's, you know, it's, it's a difficult conversation with people. And I think, I think it's, I think it's the best place to start when you start to clarify what is, what is right and wrong. I think you really get a long, a long way in life. Mm. When you clarify it, you mean what's right or wrong for you personally, right? Cause we call this, you know, identities, priorities and values um, in the precision nutrition coaching world. Right. And yeah. it's one of the first steps that we go through is like, this is the first place we start because until then you can't develop a decent action plan out of the situation that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. No. And this brings up kind of an, just an interesting thought because, you know, kind of what you're expressing is, is, is we can't necessarily be certain in, in like the absolute correctness of any ideas that we hold. Yeah. Um, however, I would say that, that in order for us to, to function, we need to anchor to something. 
otherwise we end up just kind of floating around in this. Uh, we potentially start arguing from the position of, well, this is, this is my truth or my lived experience. And I hear some of this language get used. And I guess I'm trying to like push back just a little bit. Um, Go for it. To, to, to provoke to say like at a certain point we do we do have to accept certain things or hold them to be true for now but i think hold them to be true with the idea that until we get more information or until we learn something new that might that might change this perspective and and why i bring that forward is again just this idea and maybe i'm speaking more from even personal experience i remember like being in, in, in the depths of like an, an episode of anxiety and just feeling like i was just like staring into this pounding blackness that was trying to swallow me and feeling very disconnected and very um unanchored to anything it was a very disconcerting feeling and it would even feel like i was i was almost floating out of my body and i think it was it's it's like a response of like i'm trying to completely check out from this whole thing all of that to say um it was really really valuable to have something or someone to anchor to to sort of bring me back to this this place and it could be as simple as putting my hand on someone's shoulder without expressing what exactly was happening in my body at the time and so I agree that we can't, we can't really, or we shouldn't really speak in absolutes because we are very ignorant in our understanding of all of this. We simply don't, don't have the knowledge, but I'm grateful that we're starting to explore this and have these conversations and want to learn and want to expand our knowledge. Yeah. You know, I, when, when I talk about like absolutes and when I talk about discussing them in terms of, of pinpointing how to actually overcome things, um, it's, it's more about understanding the perspective that you hold than it is about understanding everything out there in, in your identity and everything. It's, it's about really taking stock of how you're honest with yourself, right? Because we like to say, you know, you know, maybe Christianity is right for me or, or Islam is right for me or Judaism is right for me. Um, and, and then we put stock into what, Christianity says is right or wrong for us. And we don't take stock and look at what our body is actually saying in, in these, in these realms of saying, you know, well, Christianity has, has justified marital rape for a really long time. And so for some reason, as a woman, I don't feel like this is right, but because Christianity has said it in the past, and I don't want to just make fun of Christianity, but all religion, all religions have really done this in the past, um, in one way or the other. The justification of right and wrong that limits our ability to express ourselves and 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 feel what we need to feel uh, physically is really where we're where this discussion should focus. I think you know when we mm. when we talk about right and wrong, it's really about developing is our body actually in agreement with us when we say this is what's right for me. Uh, you know, when, when you talk about anxiety, right, there's, there's clearly something within you or, right. You, you mentioned disconnection. This is a really interesting kind of segue into, you know, how I discuss suicide, right? Society likes to look at suicide and say suicide's the problem, right? You know, the, like look at the veteran, uh, veteran community, 22 a day, right? Suicide's the problem. Well, no, the fuck it's not, right? Because the army has created this this sense of uh, be silent because every time you speak, you cause a problem somewhere, right? You have to be a part of the team. You have to be a functioning member of the team. And if you start telling us you have problems, well, then you're not a part of the team anymore. And so, you know, that that disconnection is really where the the problems 
lie when we're talking about humanity, I think, personally. Um, am I right or wrong? I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping to find out. But Well, from a cultural anthropology perspective, you're not going to get any argument over here because the reality is, is there's always this push and pull between independence and collaboration in the human species, right? Like, yeah. And I've talked about it before, I think, on this particular live stream about the us versus them paradigm. And it, it pops up all of these places. And we're actually emotionally wired to respond to being part of a specific group, which is why we create these paradigms and these belief systems in the first place. We need rules to function by. It's what John said earlier about anchoring himself back to this like reality, right? Like we need those things in order to be able to function and make decisions within the chaos that is the natural world. But then we get trapped by that if we're not careful. And so it's, it's, it's really trying to work hard on this black and white aspect, you know, of, of these paradigms of saying like, either you do all of these things and you're part of the team or you don't and you're not. And that's what's I think so dangerous and polarizing. And, and in my business and with work with my clients, <coughs> it's where I see people get really trapped often is when, when everything is black or white. And especially mm. when we're speaking about suicide, um, you know, I don't know if your experience has been this way as well, but people in that frame are often very binary. It's very much like everything is awful or, and there is no way out. And these are the only options. I, I can't make these other choices. And you hear a lot of this very limiting, yeah. um, like verbiage for lack of a better way to say it. So yeah. I, I feel like it's how do we create a little more freedom within the framework that people need to function optimally without destroying the framework. Because often that's the opposite, right? It's like we just go for anarchy and we tear it all down and like either Christianity is totally bad or it's the best thing and the only thing. And neither of those things functions very well for us. Right. I, I think uh, Jordan Peterson's new book, Beyond Order, is a really good discussion of this. Is he the um, guy who wrote Sapiens? No, yeah. he, he wrote uh, 12, 12 Rules for Life. 12, yep, 12 Rules and for the, Life. And uh, antidote for chaos is is kind oh, of the, the new one. Um, he he talks about this like don't denigrate social institutions, mm. right? Because they've existed, right? Like marriage, right now, marriage is an interesting situation because a lot of people are like, "Fuck marriage!" Only fifty percent of it works, right? And the idea is certainly it's something that hasn't always been good for everyone. Obviously, you know, there's, there's this male dominance in marriage that has existed in the past, but there's still an aspect of marriage that continues to exist that is successful, that it's good, that's important, right? And I look at my marriage right now, I was thinking about this last night. Um, I look at my marriage and I have the ability to stop for a moment in my day throughout, throughout my week or my life. And I, I look at my wife and I see joy, right? I see happiness. I feel happiness. I feel comfort just knowing that she is, you know, she's in that other room because that's where our nursery is, but I know she's there and, and that's comforting. That's, that's a safety net for me. Um, and in many ways it's the same thing for her. Sometimes I'll catch her looking at me and enjoying the fact that we are here in this space together. Have we struggled? Absolutely. Has it been easy to, to go through things like, having her go to grad school, having me to go to Afghanistan, uh, trying to buy a house while I'm overseas. Has it been easy to go through the three miscarriages that we've gone through? No, it has not been easy. Um, and so, you know, you can't denigrate a social institution just because some people can't figure out how to make it work. Right. Or some it's, aspects of it aren't working. 
Right. And mm. so right. it's it's important to understand that there's a there's a functional aspect to these social institutions that have existed for a very long time and they're they're necessary for the right people. Are they necessary for all people? That's the that's really the question. And I think an important piece of this is you have to look at how people actually approach them. Right. I think in this society today, in this cultural uh, revelation of social media, of speed, of efficiency, of everything that we're trying to do all the time, 24 hours a day, there's 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 this information overload that we're trying to create relationships on a level that has never been seen before in human history. Right. We're well, we're, the, we're, the culture of Tinder. Try, try yeah. to create, you know. We're, we're going to use an algorithm to say these things that I wrote in my profile mean that these things that you wrote in your profile mean that we're we're likely to be compatible. And, right. and yeah. I, I, it's such what? a ham-fisted attempt at human interaction. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's quite a fascinating thing to watch unfold for like me to like see how this plays out. But like <clears throat> it, it's so reductionist in what it actually is to be connected to another person that it yeah. can't help but fail really, you know. And it gives, it gives all the options, right? Right. It gives all the options. And that's, that's probably part of the problem is that you see so many different people to compare everyone to. And, and that's not always a good thing, right? Certainly it's, it can be a good thing. I think, I think it's kind of what I did to, to find my wife as I dated multiple people, but the intention was very different because I've dated multiple people in a long, you know, a long time ago. Right. But that was a different situation. This time I set rules, right? Like we go back to that idea of rules, mm-hmm. you know, and the values mattered. Right. And that's another thing I think would be good to discuss is I created intention within the values that I connected with, that I wanted, that I was searching for. And I said, okay, I'm going to go on a date with you. You do not have the values. And right. I judged that objectively as much as I could. You don't have the values. And I continued on. Right. And, and I didn't, I didn't look back. I looked forward and eventually I came to my wife and I was like, wow, like, I didn't even have to think about it. It was just like, mm-hmm. you have everything that I'm looking for. And so you're my choice. Right. And so when you use it correctly, it can be beneficial, but nobody knows how to use it correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the people that stumble upon it, like myself, I got really lucky that I'm using it, that I used it correctly to find her. And maybe I didn't, I don't know that the, the truth will be told in 50, 60 years. Well, I think what's fascinating about even this discussion of sort of marriage and relationships and the failure and breakdown of it is perhaps once again, uh, culturally, what we've done is we've romanticized the idea of human relationships to the extent that we start to think there's something wrong here when my relationship doesn't match up to what I'm being presented with, whether it's in media, digital media, social media, and it's created this distorted sense of expectation mm-hmm. and, and and also that the, hey, the solution is just to quit. Uh, the solution is just to walk away because this is too difficult and there's an easier way out there and and so on. And, you know, uh, I, I would agree, like my wife and I have been together for 17 years and <laughs> there's been a lot of bumps in the road. My wife's watched me go through just a crazy journey and, but she stuck with me the, you know, the whole way. And mm-hmm. we, because we, we actually just started with this, this ground rule that, Hey, we're in this for life and we're going to figure a way out of this. And so we had this one rule that we don't go to bed angry. And mm-hmm. that meant we stayed up all night some nights. 
until we finally came to a conclusion. And I got to give credit to my wife for being <laughs> kind of stubborn in this respect <laughs> that we're we're going to stick to this rule that we figure this out and keep this going. And, uh, you know, we've got a better relationship than ever now as a result of that. And it's really exciting to see where it's going to go. And I think I wouldn't have got here if I hadn't been willing to uh, willing to sort of stick it out in those those, those tough situations. And the other part of it is because, I, I, you know, again, I think we sort of live in a bit of a throwaway culture and maybe I'm uh, call me old fashioned or traditional or something, but I have something that like money can't buy. So I have a relationship I've invested 17 years of my life in. That's it's almost, mm-hmm. you know, that's 40, 45% of my life has been invested in this human relationship. That's a lot. And uh, I don't get that back, but I, I am where I am because I've put all that time into it. And so I guess I just want to say, highlight that there's real value and joy in, in doing that, or there can be if you approach it in the right way. Yeah. I think I think what we're dancing around really is something Caitlin said earlier about, you know, you're sort of these externalized beliefs and this, this idea that you're sold these fixes as if there is such a thing as if like any one thing is going to solve a problem and that problem is no longer going to exist is part of what makes us so unhappy. You know, it's, it's, it's back around to this idea of like, this is how my life should go. This is what I'm being told my life should look like. And when we ascribe to that too much and we forget what actually, you know, the, the really deep, meaningful parts of human connection are about, then it is very disenchanting, right? And I've been married for 15 years together for 17 as well. And it's like, it's not even about anymore, like any of the Hallmark card things or any of that. It's like, we have so much shared experience that it's inconceivable to me (laughs) that I could rebuild that with anyone else ever. It would not be the same. And that might be okay, but at the same time, like, it's invaluable for that reason. And and no external solution is going to make anything better than that, than what I have in my life, you know, cause we, we've lived in three countries. I had uh, my daughter abroad in the Czech Republic, which was <laughs> not like on one hand, it was the best thing because we would be bankrupt if we had done that here. Um, and it was the worst thing because I almost died in childbirth. And so like, those people saved my life in a language I barely understood <laughs> in an environment where neither of us were optimally functional. And like no one else could possibly understand that experience because we were the only two people in that room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think there's like, there's so much more to ha- to be had in life when we look to these deeper things, when we embrace this emotional vulnerability and we're able to say like, Hey, these are the things that are really important to me. And I know that because my body agrees with that. Like the somatic experience is the same as the cognitive experience. And I've lined these two things up and I make my decisions based off of that. And I think it takes a really long time to get to a place where you're confident making those decisions that way. Like hands up if you're 20 and you feel super confident in listening to what your body says and doing that. Like, I don't know any 20 year olds who do that, but I would say it goes back to something we've talked about a lot with the deep health Academy stuff, which is, this is what we really need to be teaching. These are the, these are the skills and the important things that we need to be passing on to people sooner so that they have more time to use these tools to make better decisions for themselves. Yeah. When you, when you kind of dig into, you know, something you said in there kind of, kind of struck me of like rebuilding something like that is, is not plausible. It's not, it's, it's impossible. You know, the building of it, is kind of the powerful piece of that, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I would say John and Chris, and I don't, Caitlin, I don't know if you're married, but this this idea that 
when you come together with someone, if, if you've lasted for 15 years and 17 years, well, guess what? You did the work to define something that creates connection, right? And that's, that's something that I think I, I have really kind of stumbled upon in many ways of like, I, I've defined my values to a point of, I know who exactly who I am, right? This, this confidence to look at myself and I know exactly what makes me happy, what makes me tick, what makes me want to do what I want to do um, in many regards, not all, but many. And then I have also looked at my wife and I've, I've said to her, you know, what is your definition of love? Right. And I've, because I've defined love in my own terms and what we did together is something that I know will stand the test of time because we built it together. We had the discussion, we created this, this almost rule, the set of rules of Mm -hmm. saying, this is how we operate in our relationship. And, you know, we, we don't struggle with that idea because we can look at each other and say, well, that's not necessarily how we defined love. What do you think about that? Um, And sometimes it's a little bit more sharp and a little bit more pointed sometimes, but you know, it all, it always happens, but sometimes you're like, you're right. And you have, and you can't deny that you're, you're absolutely right. That's exactly how we defined it. And the way you explained it makes me guilty. And I have to, you know, sometimes I have to take a step, t- step back. Sometimes she has to take a step back and we have to look at each other and say, I made a mistake. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and own up to that because we created something that is functional for us. We're both happy with it. We're both, we're, we don't struggle with the idea. And so, We've, we've built that. I'm sure, I'm sure Chris, we, you've built that John, you've probably built that as well. And so when I, when I look at that, there's a lot of different words that people don't know how to define, right? Mm -hmm. That we use every single day, right? I think love is one of them. I could ask all of you, what is the definition of love without looking at a dictionary and you, you'd all give me different answers. I I guarantee it, right? There, There might be somewhat the same. You might unconditional or action or doing or giving or whatever, but they're not all the same. And if we try to come together with a different definition of love, and so we're doing different things, it's probably not going to work out. And that's part of that connection is really the ability to communicate. And that's one of the things that I work with a lot is we can't communicate in relationships. So we create this us versus them because there's disconnection. Well, and you have to create a collaborative language. And I think this is where languages come into play as well, because we, as larger groups of people, we have whole different languages where we just literally don't even make the same mouth movements to communicate yep. with each other, right? And even within one language, love can mean something completely different to mm-hmm. five different people in the room. And I think this is this is the foundation of human belonging, right? And this is what some of the social media culture and some of the the more instant gratification culture strips away from us is this deeper sense of collaborative, creative rulemaking and standard setting that allows us to then be really cooperative um, and and exceptionally functional, right? This is why we excel as a species is because we are flexibly collaborative. Mm -hmm. And so when we lose that, go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, uh, you'd mentioned Jordan Peterson and I I thought about something he discussed uh, I, I know, Chris, these are two names that make you smile a bit sardonically, but uh, mm-hmm. I believe he was discussing this on the Joe Rogan experience. I knew that's uh, what podcast. you were going to say. Yep. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I really, I really, 
I, but I really enjoyed what he talked about. And he talked to you, he was talking about music because I, I love music and music and languages are quite closely connected. But he said, you know, and music. Math. Yeah, and math. And, and, and so that it kind of dances on the edge of chaos, right? If it's, if it's completely predictable, it's incredibly boring. But if you just mash a bunch of notes together chaotically, like it's, it's basically torture to listen to. And so you have to find kind of this balance between you're providing a degree of structure and familiarity and harmony. Mm-hmm but a little bit of unpredictability and novelty mixed in there that makes the experience really enjoyable. And that's maybe a good metaphor for kind of trying to navigate a meaningful relationship. We, we love chaos, but we are comfortable in stability. We strive to organize it. That's what's so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so bad about being a person, right? It's like, oh, look at all this chaos. I'll clean it up. I mean, like, how many other animals actively sweep their floors besides like some rainforest birds trying to make like really attractive nests for women? Not very many. Yeah. No, I mean, like, like uh, our our closest animal counterparts are busy flinging their fecal matter at each other. So, Mm. yeah. uh, <laughs> was I reading somewhere that like the more intelligent the monkey, the more poop they fling? I was like, hmm, that seems counterintuitive. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. We're all we're all shit talkers here. <laughs> I know it's, it's metaphorical poop we're flinging, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I think like mindset wise, and maybe it's shifting a little bit, but I was just thinking about this. Some of the things I think like people are really stuck at the surface level stuff. And that's all that's ever talked about. Like all you ever see on social media, all you ever see on mass TV. I I grew up without cable. So I think that helped me out quite a bit. Like Hmm. people get so stuck in the service level. And, and I think that's also why with like the mental health issues, they don't understand how to like go in deeper. And they think that that's like some sort of woo woo thing, especially with all that you also see on social media and all that you also see on mass TV, they're like, oh, well, that's, that's weird if I sit down and I actually take time to think about how I'm feeling in the moment, like what emotions I have, like what's they can't dissociate between like the, the voice in their head, too. I mean, yeah. if they have that, some people don't and, and realize like that's not necessarily me and I, I can change that. But it, it takes time. I like what you're articulating here because I just before we started recording, I talked about having my first, I think, uh, sort of real in-depth somatic experiencing treatment, and it was it was very fascinating because th- I have this hip issue that's been coming up and it's been going on for about two years, and and I've seen many different treatment providers and really couldn't come, you know, we can't find anything structurally wrong with it, and so it was suggested that I, I try somatic experiencing, and uh, I don't I Can don't know just- how it. Can you pause and just describe what that means? Because I think that's one of those <laughs> yeah. terms yeah. where people, True. you know, they hear that and they may not know exactly what your experience was. So before you tell yeah. us about it, maybe. I'm like, well, how do you define somatic experiencing? Because it's it's like an umbrella. Well, it's, it's an umbrella practice that usually um, attaches onto another one, whether it's physiotherapy or massage therapy or even psychology and counseling. But uh, it, it's this idea like, man, I don't know how to define it. It feels very nebulous well, to me. What happened when you went? Can you explain it? So, yeah, I can I can kind of jump in for the somatic experiencing idea. So basically what somatic experiencing is, it's this, this internal renegotiation of the narrative, right? And so mm-hmm. what you're what you're doing is because your mind is so powerful, um, you have the ability to create a, a narrative. Of, if, of an event, let's say you get in a car accident, right? And the car accident is particularly traumatizing. And um, let's say you develop uh, a, a tick 
right? Some would call it, um, uh, oh, what's that? What do you, what do you swear? Yeah. Right. And so some people might look at that and say that's Tourette's, right? But it's not, it's, it's simply a trauma focused spasm that your body uh, has induced because the trauma was unprocessed. And so what somatic experiencing does is you go back into this narrative that is completely defeating, right? It's very defeating. And you come out of this with, you know, all sorts of bad experiences and bad memories and bad thoughts, bad feelings, right? You redefine and renegotiate this narrative to create victory, create success, create whatever you want, but it's this creating this feeling, right? The feeling of over overcoming the feeling of getting through this, the feeling of processing, if you want, um, to the point of your, your mind is actually recreating the, the memory proteins, because every time you think about something, a memory, uh, you rebuild the proteins. And so those proteins then enhance and, and, and redefine your feeling experience of, of whatever it is you're going through. And so somatic experiencing is basically a renegotiation of the narrative of that event. Um, and it's a continuous process to a point where people literally heal themselves because of it. Well, we're and not just the mentally. Network, right. We're changing the neural, the neural it's, path that it's taking in it's, the brain. Yeah. It's all sorts of different things. It's mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. Mm. Yeah. And then as far as this pertains to you, John, it's actually mm. manifesting as physical pain for you. Right. But yeah. there, because you're not finding any structural issue, right? There's nothing structurally to work on. And so the next step you've taken is to go and say, okay, is this pain being generated somewhere else possibly in my head? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, of course, in my history, I have two, two motorcycle accidents and a car accident, uh, all injuring the left side of my body. Uh, and they ha- but they happened over like 16, 17 and 20 years ago. And so, but it started to manifest about two years ago again, and mm. it, it seemingly came out of nowhere. Uh, there was, there was no injury. There was no it just started happening. And, uh, uh, it was, it was my physiotherapist who does a bit of SE, um, in her own way said like the body will sacrifice a muscle to protect an organ. And I was like, well, that's an interesting, interesting thought. So there's been a lot of sort of digging around there, but this time around, uh, it, it was like, it was very gentle touch on the body. I think just to, just to create like a very subtle nervous system response on a specific area. While uh, while she was asking sort of inquisitive and exploratory questions, asking me to describe some of my history, some of my family history. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so there's a, a lot of really interesting things connected to it. Very permission-based language. So nothing is forced, nothing is pushed. It's extremely gentle. And, and so for me, it was really fascinating being a male, being sort of used to the the typical masculine perspective, I'm going to go in there and fix it. And, you know, you know, beat it into submission with some ART. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I think I've had male physiotherapists work on it and they basically put me through a torture session where I really get really good at breathing through pain because they can cause excruciating agony, but it it would provide a day or two of relief and then boom, it comes back again. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, okay, I can, but this was a very, very different. This is an older lady just speaking very softly in a gentle voice, doing what seems like, like very subtle things. Like you might have a hand on my abdomen somewhere, just pressing ever so slightly or a hand under my back and then gets me talking about these different things. And then just, she would say, look, I'm going to invite you to explore this. Uh, You know, what are you feeling over here? And, you know, I started actually describing colors that I was seeing in my body in this moment. When I talked about this experience, this color kind of came up in this part of my body. And it was, it was something that I'd never, I'd never done before, actually. 
And uh, I can say that two, two days later, uh, already, like my, my hip has been functioning slightly better. It still reminds me that there's, there's an issue there, but there's been progress made. Why, why I'm bringing this up is just this idea of like, it felt quite difficult in a sense, like it felt like I was hunting, like looking for things. And uh, one of the things she kept encouraging me to do is just kind of like, let go, stop, like stop even like necessarily looking for things and just see what comes to you. Because uh, we're so conditioned to, to, again, to like look, to hunt, to fix, to, to go to for do, it. And, right, to do. Like, and she's like, I just want you to be. And then the other response that was happening for me was wanting to like check out. So I, I it to almost like close my eyes and go into a meditative state. And she's like, I don't want you doing that right now. Open your eyes, look at the room. Like she wasn't commanding like that, but she's, you know, uh, in, encouraging me to open my eyes, look around the room, see what I can see while I'm lying on my back and be present with this because one of my body's instinctual responses was to try to check out of this experience. It's interesting. So, yeah. I was just reading about that the other day. It's like there's this sort of tiered response system that you have and I can't, and it, it's a brand new thing and I, I don't think I'm going to get it all right. But one of them is literally you'll, you'll hypo respond so like you you'll just shut down because mm. it's, it's almost like a freeze mechanism of mechanism of over processing <laughs> right and that's, so yeah that, that was exactly like that's it. what you experienced she was mm -hmm. like and she and she explained it like but it was all done like again like so, so very gently and slow and she said like the whole idea this is a slow process mm. like this isn't this isn't we're not trying to hammer our way through this we're, right. we're just yeah. gonna you, like because yeah you can't and, and i think that's because I, I wrote down here like disconnection to the body, like uh, and, and Dylan, you've, you've spoken about listening to your body or hearing what your body is saying. Or your body is talking to you, and we use language like this. But I think again, as, as you've highlighted, Chris, so many of us don't really understand like what, how do we even? Because a lot of our life, we're conditioned not to listen to our body. You're hungry, suck it up. We're eating in two hours. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, turn off your response yeah. or turn off your awareness of that signal. You know, you're crying too bad. Learn to shut it down. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, Last night, uh, my son screamed for uh, an hour and 15 minutes straight. Uh, my wife was at an appointment, and so she wasn't coming home, and and, and uh, he wanted her at bedtime. And my son's a year old. He's just, just turned a year. And mm -hmm. uh, there's really nothing I could do in that situation except sit with him in it and be like, I'm here for you. I'm here with you. And it was so interesting, again, watching how he navigated that versus how I might have five years ago, where I might have got angry at him, or I might have been like, shut up, kid, or or something like that. And instead... I just was with him and ah, parenting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, but by the time my wife got home, I was like, okay, I need to go veg for a bit here. <laughs> like this has been yeah. pretty intense after like an hour and 15 minutes of like screaming and, and thrashing and flopping himself face down in frustration. But I was okay. The, the conclusion of it was quite funny. He just sat up and like, wah, whomp, and just like face planted in frog position, fell asleep and didn't move for four hours. My man. He just, he just burned himself. <laughs> I was like, uh, you know, but that was a really interesting situation to navigate now, sort of the place where I'm emotionally and mentally, where, where this kid was just like screaming and, but all he wasn't trying to make my life miserable. He's literally trying to express the distress he's presently in because my, my wife or his mom wasn't there in this moment. He'd come to depend on her mm -hmm. and to even see it like that versus you're trying to make my life miserable. You little turd. Right. Yeah. Right. It was a totally different, uh, totally different experience. What I, what I, th I find really interesting is, is we, we think we, ha we have language, right? And so we think we can communicate with ourselves. And the reality is, is our language will never encompass the vastness and the capacity we have to feel. Um, and so we, we can't explain what we feel. We can't 
really dive into exposing it to other people, right? Like it's funny because I sit in this position of, I talk to people about how they feel. And yet I'm also talking about how you, you will never have the words. You will never have all the words to explain to me how, how you feel. And yet that's my job, right? Like I, I help people develop more language to help them understand. But at the end of the day, I can't. You just have to tell this story about Mm. this horse. Okay. Which sounds like a total like tangent, but I promise it's not. It's interesting. Start it by saying (laughs) that language is an intensely blunt instrument for a highly complex system. And so the story about the horse goes like this. And it's true. Like you can Google this. I read about it the other day. Um, And there was true. I read about it on the internet. I read about it on YouTube in a video. That's how I read it. No, it's not it. But interesting. Anyway, so there was this horse they were convinced could do math, right? And they thought, okay, there's no way this is possible. So they would just have him do basic arithmetic and it would be like 12 minus four. And the horse would stomp his hoof eight times and give you the answer, right? And so they thought, well, this can't be right. There's no way a horse can can do math. And so what they did was they removed the person who had trained the horse and they started putting other people into the situation. And they started experimenting and trying desperately to figure out how this horse was doing math. And it, it got it right most of the time. And what finally they figured out was it wasn't that the horse was doing the math. The horse was reading the emotional response of the person who asked the question and stomping his hoof until he visually recognized happiness or the joy or the like confirmation of his behavior. And so this, this reasonably intelligent animal with zero language whatsoever was able to better read a situation than a whole bunch (laughs) of high level primates, right? Watching this go on. And so it wasn't magic and it wasn't the most intelligent horse in the world. It's the fact that as humans, we've downregulated so much of our somatic experience and so much of our like understanding of body language and intuition to language mm-hmm. as a right. blunt tool, right? And it's like the the stuff we miss and the fact that we can literally play a game like Pictionary or, you know, Taboo and, and literally not be allowed to talk and still transmit ideas tells you to just what degree we're not using that to mm-hmm. the degree we could be. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. why. So texting, there's my story about a horse. <laughs> texting and like email and uh, well, Twitter. When it's all words, like people, you don't get the tone. You don't see the facial expressions. You don't know if, like you're getting your point across because things can be taken so many different ways. And you're just looking at the words. And a lot of people write mm-hmm. carefully. <laughs> Also, that's a whole nother episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> Writing horribly Grammar. on the internet <laughs> yeah. from, from a couple of former languages teachers. So, mm. but you know, th- this is, this is incredible. <laughs> like this, this discussion around like, yeah, being able to tune into body language because it isn't something we're teaching. And uh, Dylan, I feel like we should connect you with Lindsay Miller, the, the stress nanny, because yes. she, she works with like young people in this regard. And it's the same, like she has, she has a, I would call a tickle trunk of all these very, very cool tools to help like, you know, she gave one example of like a balloon and then the child would pick the color of the balloon and then she would inflate the balloon is the problem this big, or is it this big, or is it this big? And then she handed them the balloon and said, okay, you now have three choices with this. You can walk around and hold this if you want to, you can give it to somebody else, or you can just let it go. And, you know, every kid likes to let go of a balloon and watch it, you know, blow around the room kind of thing. But it was it was so powerful because it's like, yes, as, uh, their brain isn't linguistically developed to the extent they can communicate the way that we would as an adult. And yet here she was able to effectively convey a concept that got them to let go of something, a worry that they were struggling with, with a balloon. 
and mm -hmm. these so these untapped tools and resources. And and Dylan, I, I really appreciate what you shared just in terms of saying, look, we're going to use words here, but the reality is there's never going to be enough words and that's okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to use them in, in the best capacity we have because they are a useful tool, but understand, because, you know, thinking about going back to my son's experience here, he didn't have words like, sure, he babbles mm -hmm. and he's got a few words and it's really cute and all the rest of it. But like, this was his attempt at communicating distress in his body. Like that, mm -hmm. that was it. And he was using the strongest tool he had to let me know of his displeasure that mom wasn't here. Yeah. And so that was the strongest feeling he was having. Right. And, and I think we spend so much of our lives parenting down regulating the emotional response our children have that we set up these issues for later. Right. Because that's what we're doing. Right. We're layering in all this social programming to say it's not acceptable to say how you feel. Mm -hmm. It's these feelings are acceptable. These feelings are not acceptable. And right. these are the acceptable ways in which you can talk about or express these feelings. Other ones are not acceptable. And it goes back to that rule book, right, that we've created. It's arbitrary and we do get to change it and we don't have to stick with rules that don't work. But like it's a painful process. Right. And so I mean, it's interesting as parents, like how do we navigate that now with that that new sort of paradigm of like, actually, I need you to be able to express these emotions. I also need you to teach. I also need to teach you how to deal with them. But I haven't mastered it myself necessarily. I, I find it really remarkable where we are uh in in many facets of society right historical societal and you know all of it um but social media is is a particularly interesting subject for me obviously because i'm an influencer i'm on it i use it i see it every single day um and and john maybe this will be an, an interesting conversation for you with with how you see tiktok um but i look at like how facebook engaged people in 2007 um and how organic reach kind of blossomed right and we were we were able, able to connect with people we've never heard of and we've never been able to before certainly the internet was kind of the purveyor of that but social media is is the connector on internet and you know you see youtube you see uh you see what instagram did obviously some of you have have you're you're here for a reason probably because of what in instagram did right and so you know, I'm here essentially because of what TikTok did, right? Mm -hmm. I I found a platform, you know, in, in my life, I've, I've watched social media grow up and now I found a platform for myself where I was comfortable enough to step out and start talking about, you know, suicide on an app that was built for dancing, right? And the... Yeah. The remarkable nature of of that paradox is is not lost on me. I, I find it quite funny sometimes. But what it's uh, what it's really allowed us to do is TikTok came out for a reason. It's because in, Instagram is relatively fake, and and Facebook is for fighting families, right? Like it's it's the drama, right? YouTube is for the how to projects of learning whatever you want to learn. Um, you know, and Twitter's for that. Twitter's just. <laughs> Twitter's a dumpster a fire, right? Like it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It's the Tinder of apps or the Tinder of social media. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, you don't really want to be on it, but you no. kind of have to sometimes, but like TikTok is, you know, I don't, I don't want to necessarily give it a good name because there's certainly bad aspects to it, but it's real. And mm -hmm. so there's, there's not a, it's not good and it's not bad, but it is real. There's a lot of people on there that are willing to step out and expose emotions that you, know, you never saw on Facebook when it first came out. You never right. saw on Instagram when it first came out. You never saw on YouTube or, 
you know, or Twitter, like Twitter's interesting again, but TikTok is very different. And we are being exposed to emotions and that expression, that openness of expression on a scale because of TikTok that has never been seen before. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting thing is, you know, I found this, I found this specific platform at this specific time in my life um, where I'm, I'm a part of it, right? Like I'm, I'm actively building this, this kind of notion of what I see TikTok as um, and it's coming true. And I don't think it's coming true just because I want it to come true. I think it's coming true because a lot of people have seen Instagram and seen Facebook and seen social media and also seen uh, Gen X parents be brutal, right? And baby boomers be absolute savage. And, you know, we look back throughout history and like Jordan Peterson, again, I'm going to bring him up, talked about this a long time ago on an interview, talked about the 1800s, right? Mm -hmm. Life was like, was brutal in the 1800s right? You didn't live past 35, right? We're living past 80. Like my, like my grandpa died at like 93, right? Mm-hmm. Like these, th- these are things that like never happened in the 1800s. And we have continuously adapted ourselves to do what we started. I think what we're doing is we're actually starting to do what we feel is right. Not just what we believe is right. Mm-hmm. Right. Women's suffrage in the twenties, uh, slavery before that, you know, like the abolition of, you know, the, or the, the civil rights movement in the sixties, like all of these things were things that we like, certainly people felt were right, but people were like, this, this is right. Like we have to do this. But now I think we're in an emotional revolution of sorts where we're able to actually look and say, I feel this right. And and this woo woo stuff that we've looked at Mm -hmm. for ages and said, it's woo woo right? We're actually starting to look at and say EMDR, somatic experiencing, right? Neurofeedback, like certainly there's science linked to it, but you look at it and you're like, there's actually, there's, there's a real tangible outcome that if done long enough and done at, you know, uh, focused enough, we're actually getting results from it. We're actually, you know, we look back at, you know, you're, you know, Chris, you're an anthropologist, like, we look back at anthropology and we see these tribes and we start bringing them into the forefront of society. And we say, why are they so happy? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And, well, and we, is, yeah. we give them it does, credit. It does often make you kind of step away from Western culture and say, wait a second, actually, <laughs> maybe yeah, right? we, we really just were ignoring a lot of this stuff. This is not revolutionary. Like this no, is right. not stuff people haven't figured out in the past. And then you look at, there's actually a book. Oh, I haven't read it in a, million years now what it's called uh chris is very old western bot i am very old a gen x comment really was a bit cutting but it's okay. <laughs> you'll, be right. you'll be all right <laughs> uh, i was just waiting okay, i don't have feelings anyway apparently right like that's <laughs> yeah. how that goes but no it's called um eastern body western mind and it talks about this this disconnection we've achieved in the western world around like we separate the mind and the body and we try to dominate the body with the mind and how that actually ends up playing out and all of a sudden people are going hey wait wait maybe we shouldn't do that and all the west, the eastern people are like yeah <laughs> we know <laughs> right we've we've been doing this stuff you look at you know hinduism and you look at meditation and you look at all of these things and and the practice of yoga which was very much woo woo when it first arrived here everybody's like oh yoga oh that's for like hippies right and as a gen xer i get to say that so um which it's 
very insensitive nowadays. But when you look at that, the way that we viewed that at the time, like it's really problematic because it was in, it was entrenching the separation of mind and body that's really damaging to your long-term health. And it leads to what Caitlin was saying way back at the beginning about like this, this fix the problem way of functioning, right? Like here's some, I have to do this thing or consume this product or take this action and my problems go away. And in reality, that's not how it typically works, right? That's, yeah. that's the opposite of the solutions that people really need. It's preventive a lot of the time, well, you, you know, and that's you what just, mental health is about too. Yep. You just expressed more articulately the thing that I was thinking about. Um, and that, that is, I was going to call you a boomer, but anyways, um, <laughs> careful. That's, that's there are lines here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I knew you're going to come to this point where it's like, this isn't, uh, this isn't a revel you know, a revelation because mm. it's something that, that has been known, but now it's, it's because maybe it's through the medium of technology, we're seeing it as acceptable through, our, through the Western cultural lens that mm -hmm. in this way, because I think what we've, what we've grappled with a lot is you can't put a mind in a jar. You can't, you can't take it out, extract it, weigh it, quantify it, but we know that somehow it exists and we're uncomfortable with this idea of the unknown. You know, uh, and so all of a sudden we're going, okay, maybe we need to look into this because what we've been doing isn't really working. We look at the health of like North America on a whole. We spend trillions of dollars on so-called health care and we have a population that is more sick and suffering. We figured out how to advance life or keep life going because we solved problems like basic hygiene and sanitation and food supply. Mm -hmm. But in, in doing so, we've just created a population that's sicker for longer before they die. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good thing. And so now we're starting to look for answers and go, well, shoot, <laughs> everything we've done up to this point has got us to here, but there's, there's gotta be, uh, there's gotta be more to it. And we're going to open up our mind to the possibility. There's something to this and maybe be okay with the fact that we can't put it in a jar and measure it. And it's still real. Well, it's interesting you say that because they're actually in quantum physics, they're starting to look at this God particle thing because they've got some, some things they've been able to observe at this point without getting too deep into any of this. Um, but like, they can't explain it. It does not obey the traditional laws of physics and everybody's mm -hmm. going, uh Oh, like, Hmm. So, you know, it's not that we, we can't put a brain in a jar at this point, And I don't think we should really be trying, but also I think it's this idea that like, there was a lot of stuff we were intuitively in tune with before we started this journey down the road of science and proof and only facts and logic. And then we kind of decided to whole hog go in that direction, but it eliminates a lot of the experience that we, we intuitively knew about as part of this ecosystem that we exist in. Right. And now we're coming around to the fact that like, Oh, actually maybe that stuff was really important too. And there isn't only one. And it's this binary choice. Again, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent science and a hundred percent, you know, like mm -hmm. spirit animals and things that were more. I don't my tiger. Wow. <laughs> um, well, so here's, here's something really like I've just recently completed a meditation teacher certification as well. So I have an additional mm -hmm. tool in my toolbox and it's kind of, it's very cool, but meditation is this interesting thing. When I was really grappling with anxiety and sort of the depression that followed anxiety, um, meditation would be very, very disconcerting. Um, because mm -hmm. again, it created this sense of disconnection. And one of the, one of the, um, I don't know if you could say risks around meditation, because I think it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of meditation and mindfulness as a practice. I think there's real value here, but there are some concerns around that it's actually possible to form false memories and a false sense of reality in doing this. And, mm -hmm. and so I think, Chris, I, I like that you're talking about this. We shouldn't treat this as a binary thing where 
uh, we're completely disconnected from reality in the realm of woo, or we're completely disconnected from humanity in the realm of put everything in a box and measure mm -hmm. it. You know, when, when you, when you say that, and it reminds me of one of, one of my clients, when we talk about, uh, like, like meditation in general, you know, one of the things I focus on is breathing because, you know, when you, when you look at the body's response to PTSD and trauma, mm -hmm. the, the first thing that happens is your heart rate elevates, right? Physically, that's, that's one of the first thing that they're really, it's a telltale sign, right? You're, you're about to dissociate. Um, well, we tried breathing and it made worse, right? It made things far worse. And what's, what's really interesting about that. Um, and, and this is kind of speculation, but we kind of, we kind of figured that, or at least I figured is that when you, when you are trying to navigate something that's traumatic into something, uh, healthy, uh, whether mindset perspective, whatever you want to call it, um, what you cannot do is go from reverse, you know, you have the car in reverse and put it into go, right. You can't put it into sixth gear, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this wide spectrum of, scenarios that you have to walk yourself through guess what you have to get to neutral before you can you know before you can get into first first gear um this is one of the things i i love trevor mawad he he died i think two years ago or a year ago um but his book it takes what it takes gave that analogy and and really discussing how we look at negativity and positivity but i i look at this you know one thing we haven't really talked about we've talked about this disconnection that society's building, right? But we, I think we look at it too, uh, too macro, right? We're looking mm -hmm. at society when the reality is, is that societies are built on people. They're built on families. They're built on social structures that are a lot smaller than just, uh, yep. you know, hundred million people. And so where these, where the micro inner, uh, uh, disconnections happen are within the interactions between families, right? How did your dad talk to you? How did your mom talk to you? Mm -hmm. And and we talk about that. Um, you know, if you are trying to overcome how your dad talked to you, or or realistically, you probably don't even recognize how your dad talked to you as being bad. But you look at what you think now is like, I can never feel good enough for anyone else. Why? Right? And then the question becomes, well, where did that come from? And maybe that came from your your dad expected you to be perfect. He expected you to be everything he didn't get to be. Um, mm -hmm. And when you when you look at that on a on a level of like meditation and breathing is like if you're trying to overcome that through meditation, sometimes that will actually you know if your dad said maybe you should breathe right that mm -hmm. can become a trigger that can become a response that's negative to you and so it's it's vastly complicated when we start looking into everything and all of these, here's all of these solutions, but guess what? They may not all work for you. And so you're going to look at that and you're going to say, well, uh, meditation was the worst thing I've ever done. And so it's a, it's the, you know, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. The reality is, well, guess what? It probably just wasn't right for you. Maybe it'll be right for someone else. The, you know, the reality of this journey is it sucks, right? <laughs> and you've got, yeah. to, you've got to figure out what doesn't suck that much. And there's a level of suck that you have to accept and you have to continue to push through to really understand and ask the questions of why do I feel this way? And, you know, how do I overcome this feeling? You've got to be willing to ask sucky questions. You know, you've got to be willing to, to go through, you know, the, the, the shit packed stories of, of how you became who you are. 
and be willing to also step into things like somatic experiencing that are really uncomfortable mm-hmm. or EMDR in, in which you're going to, you know, you're going to potentially relive some of these experiences. You know, there's even, you know, some people really do benefit from exposure therapy as, as crazy as it used to be and how, how useful it used mm-hmm. to be. Right. And, and how, you know, you're going to have to figure out your own experience. You know, if you, if you haven't figured that out in your own mental health journey, guess what? Here's the, here's the wake up call. You're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think people need to start getting comfortable with the idea that they need to get comfortable to reach where they want to be. Cause that's like in everything. Get I think it's this idea that we, that the underlying goal is to avoid pain or suffering and I mm-hmm. think that this is the biggest, most problematic belief system that we have is that suffering is bad. Yeah. Unpopular opinion coming your way. <laughs> but, but that suffering is bad and we should try to like eradicate it. And I'm not saying that like we should not try to make sure everybody is fed or that we should not be meeting people's basic needs. But I think that inherently in the human experience, things are not all going to go well. It's this idea that if everything was always awesome, nothing would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's this, it's in this place where both of these experiences exist that we live. And when we don't acknowledge or accept or process or validate negative experience, how can we fully be a person? How can we fully exist? Right. And I think what you said about, you know, these things start on the personal level, John, and we've talked about this expansive model for change for a while now, where you have to start on this level here and understand you and your workings, your interactions with your family and your friends and your environment, all of that first, right? But you need also to have a safe place to do that. And I think that's, you know, when we started doing these talks, I felt very much on an island with what I was talking about with my clients and with what what work I was doing with people and how, you know, I thought I was going to be talking about broccoli and chicken and stuff. And I ended up talking (laughs) about this instead, you know, and realizing, hey, this is, you know, this tag of life coach isn't right. And this tag of health coach isn't right. And this tag (laughs) of nutrition coach blows too. like, none of these things are really what we're doing here and what we're doing. And I think, you know, the best part about having these conversations has been is that we're connecting people back together in ways that are actually really, really helpful and creating those communities from, from places of safety. And I think that's like, I, I've just really enjoyed this conversation today because I think, you know, John does such a great job of finding people to come on here because I never know really in advance who it's going to be or what it's going to be. But I always come away like, wow, there's another person out there really, really taking a deep look at this and doing really good work with other people and helping them be a hundred percent human beings, you know? So like, I just, I don't know, I got a little emotional there at the end, but it, I just feel like this is such important work, right? Like this is just such important work to do for humans. (laughs) I love that line. Be a hundred percent human in in all of its sort of um, difficult and ugly. And, and, you know, I often find myself saying like, there is no happiness without sadness. Mm -hmm. There there is no joy without sorrow. And you're you're, in the yang. Yeah. Like, like when, when we realize that suffering is also like pain's a teacher. Mm Mm-hmm. And when we, when we hide away from pain, we hide away from lessons and growth and development. Um, I know that like, I never really learned anything great sitting on the couch, eating Cheetos, watching Netflix, you know, it felt incredibly comfortable in the moment, but 
it never, never really taught me anything, but having to find my way out of a struggle. I mean, I think every one of us is here today doing what we do because it's connected to something we personally have struggled with in our lived experience. And we go, I want to help other people out of this because maybe in, you know, I remember trying to find a coach and it was such a frustrating experience <laughs> because, and it was just not to knock like say macro coaches, for example, they didn't know what I needed and I didn't know what I needed. And so it just sucked because it was it kept coming back to why don't you do what you know to do it? You know how to do this and you're not doing it. And why aren't you doing it? And I'm like, I don't know. I wish I did, <laughs> but this is what I'm doing. And it happens and, and so on. And it was this incredibly frustrating experience until I finally found a coach who mirrored and modeled compassion and empathy. And it was a male coach and it wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting mm -hmm. to be, you know, beat me up because I'm beating myself up. Tell me what a loser I am. What a failure I am. Tell me how stupid I am because it's how I feel about myself. And he's like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that because I see something in you. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to work with you until you start to see it in yourself. And, you know, I thought I, I started working with him with the idea that like, I want to look like you. If I'm jacked, I'll be happy. And, you know, now I walk around slightly fluffy and un I don't look like a fitness model. But, you know, I can run up and down stairs and scoop my kid up and, you know, roll around with them on the floor. And I'm like, well, that's actually what I wanted. I dieted down to abs and it sucked. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, this not, you know, hey, look, if you want to have abs, cool. Like have at her. But like, I don't like. Yeah, it's not one of your core foundational like values, really, is it? I don't think it is for most people. And, and you know, you hear people saying this who have achieved this for any period of time. It's like this isn't worth it. Like, it's great. These compliments are great. People are complimenting me, but I'm tired and I'm sad and I'm hungry and <laughs> I don't like this, you know? And I think that you're getting more and more of that, thankfully, coming out. And that doesn't mean it's an unworthy goal or that you should mm -hmm. never attempt it. It's just that it's not necessarily a place to stay permanently or it's not the source of ultimate enlightenment and happiness. You know, like, yeah. abs well, are Buddha, not happiness, just Buddha for the was record. chubby. So. Yeah, Buddha, Buddha sat under a tree a lot. <laughs> yeah. There are he didn't move around are, very much, you know. There are far more important things to me than having abs. Yeah. And I think once you have kids too, a lot of these things come into very crystal clear focus. And I'm not saying that you have to have kids to experience this, but I think this this the strife and the challenge and the work and the, the everything about parenting is what makes it valuable. And I hear so many young people being like, why would I choose that? And why would I ever willfully or willingly make my life more challenging or constrained? And it's like, because that's where the rewards are. That's where the good stuff is. Like yeah, the things I've yeah. worked the hardest for are the most valuable to me. You know what? This is just a little, I guess, anecdote, but, um, you know, my son will will go up to, to to my wife and go to her belly and go like tickle tickle tickle, you know, <laughs> and he can't quite say the words correctly yet, so it comes from like blah, 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 blah. but what he's saying is tickle tickle tickle, and it's adorable. But the thing the, the thing is, he doesn't care that there's stretch marks there. He doesn't care that there's a bit of loose skin there. It's like this is my mom, and I'm I'm just doing something to express my affection for her. Mm. And it's moments like that where you go, this is this is all worth it, you know. Yeah. Nobody's programmed him otherwise yet. Yeah. And I and think we don't this is one of the, yeah, the beauties of having young children is you realize just how many layers of programming we're all wandering around with. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. well, like they're just raw emotion and like action and whatever they feel or think they do. Yeah. No filter. You know? And uh, yeah. 
you know, I, I'm determined to to show him what healthy, like masculine emotion looks like. I probably kiss him a thousand times a day. Like just, I just pick him up and it's the first thing I do. I kiss him on like every part of his head and just hold him close because boy, they grow fast as well. Now I'm feeling sentimental, but <laughs> you know. I do that with my cats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I see, and yet to, to date, there have been no cats in my area, just for the record, John. Me either. <laughs> I, I feel you, slightly... This is a free day for both of us, Kaylin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I've, I've absolutely loved this conversation and it's clear we could probably talk for quite a while longer, but, and for everybody who's watching live, I also appreciate that, that you tuned in and I hope you found real value in this conversation. There's so much more to be said in this area. And I think it's really valuable for people to, to look out, uh, folks like Dylan here. So Dylan, if people want to find you, they want to know more about what you do, but where, where do they find you? Besides, I mean, TikTok is probably the number one place, but. Probably. If, yeah. if, if you want to find me, you can just Google me and I'll probably show up on TikTok. Um, my website's www.dylansessler.com. Um, pretty, pretty easy. If you want to find my book, it's on Amazon. It's in Bar Barnes and Noble, target.com, all sorts of places. Uh, yeah, you can find me all, all sorts of places. Yeah. Very, very human and down to earth for a social media influencer. So it's, it's a real pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks everybody. And have a great That's day. That's because he's on TikTok. Yeah. Ah, that's, human. Instagram. <laughs> that's right if you were on instagram you'd be an inhuman monster but I'm i'd be weird i'd be fake i'd be like <laughs> i don't talk about still photo of here. you right like, <laughs> lots of butt pictures lots of booty pictures <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's why i never became insta famous is i didn't put on gym shark pants and i should i should have done that back in 2018 but i didn't so i mean i've got a couple online so i can't talk <laughs> uh on that note we're gonna wrap up and say uh thanks everybody for tuning in and uh we'll chat again soon we're starting this deep health academy and try to start to change the narrative around what it means to get healthy and fit and to lead a fulfilling life because in the end this is what our clients come to us for whether they think they want a six-pack or not right like for the vast majority of people, if they do manage to achieve that goal, they still are the same person they were before they had a six pack. And a lot of the issues that they were feeling haven't been resolved. So there's mindsets, beliefs, identities, and we have to bring them into our conscious awareness. If we're going to create change, the process of bringing into our conscious awareness can be uncomfortable because now we're going to see our flaws as they are. We're going to see ourselves without the filter, but with compassion, we can look at it with a curious desire to understand. And so compassion and awareness is where we create transformation.